Hey there, welcome to another edition of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week, we're going to be getting otherworldly. First, we're going to travel to the mystical world of famed astrologer Walter Mercado. Filmmakers Christina Costantini and Kareem Taubsch are going to tell us about what it was like trying to capture Walter's larger-than-life existence in their documentary, Mucho, Mucho Amor. Then we are going to visit the underworld, which also happens to be the setting for the musical Hades Town. We're going to talk to its creator, Anais Mitchell, about how she took this musical from a DIY traveling show in Vermont all the way to Broadway, where it then won seven Tonys. Then we're going to hear from you, the listeners, about your most memorable Halloween costumes. And trust me, there are some doozies. So stick around for that right here on Livewire, which gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. What's up? Oh, so much. But first... We have to play a little round of station location identification examination. I can't believe we stuck with that name. (laughs) This is where I'm going to give you information about a place, and you got to try to guess where that place is. Oh, I love it when we do this. Okay, we're talking about the underworld this week. We're talking to the creator of Hadestown, the musical. Mm -hmm. This city is home to one of the most haunted places in America, Mm. Waverly Hills Sanatorium, (gasps) which housed thousands of TB patients and has apparently lots of ghosts. You you just made a gasp like you know exactly what I'm talking about. What city? Uh, well, so my publisher of my two books is in Louisville, Kentucky. I've spent ding, some ding, time ding. in Louisville, Kentucky, so I know it's one of the greatest cities in America, Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> Absolutely right. Where we're on the radio on WFPL-FM. One other thing about Louisville, it's also the home to the longest go-kart track in the world. Oh, now that I did not know. Miles. Wow. So it's not just ghosts. It's also go-karting. And then if a ghost isn't a go-kart, it's a ghost cart, right? <laughs> I knew we would end up with some kind of wordplay. Thanks so much to everybody who's listening to us in Louisville. Woo-hoo! Shall we get to the show, Lena? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. 
This week, filmmakers Christina Costantini and Kareem Topsht on famed astrologer Walter Mercado. So he was this TV personality who gave us our astrological horoscopes, but really what he was was kind of like the first great motivational speaker. Plus, singer-songwriter and creator of the Broadway hit Hades Town, Anais Mitchell. The Orpheus character believes if he could write a song beautiful enough, he could like change the rules of the world. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Very spooky intro this week. Thank you so much. That sounded like a a ghost from Scooby-Doo, which were like... Not that terrifying, thankfully. You know, when I was a little kid, we didn't have a TV, Uh. but I would go to a local department store and I would watch Scooby-Doo in the electronics department. Uh. (laughs) Be my after school (laughs) ritual. I'm sure they loved that. I, I, I think I was like their little mascot there at the Fred Meyer on Lake City Way in Seattle. Of course, uh, as we do each week, we ask the Livewire listeners a question. We asked, what's your most memorable Halloween costume? We're kind of getting this out of the way a week before Halloween so we can give people some free ideas. Uh, We're going to hear those answers coming up in a bit. First, though, of course, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard this week? Ah, hot rock and roll news. All right. Hot Canadian rock and roll news. (laughs) Does it get any better? I know. Um, Do you know uh, the bands The Guess Who and Bachman Turner Overdrive? Oh, sure. BTO, I'm very familiar with. (laughs) They're always, they're out there taking care of business, right? That's right. And Taking Care of Business and American Woman and No Sugar Tonight were written by Randy Bachman, who was a member of both bands. Um, and he wrote all those songs on a very special guitar uh, that he bought shortly after the Guess Who's first album hit uh, in his like hometown music store. The name of the guitar mm-hmm. is a Gretsch 6120, and apparently it's kind of rare, and he loved this guitar and took it everywhere and was so afraid that he was going to lose it, he would like chain it to the toilet of the hotels <laughs> that he was staying in. <laughs> he was very into this guitar, and in 1976, about 10 years after he bought it, it did get stolen. Wow, so he wasn't just being paranoid. Like, there was a good reason to chain the guitar to the toilet. I feel like in the 70s, if you were a rock star, you should have probably chained basically everything to the hotel toilet, including yourself. Yes. Yeah, it was a wild time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So never found this guitar. 50 years almost we're going, and still no guitar. He's also been talking to uh, guitar dealers, art shops, pawn shops, you know, for decades, for longer than I've been alive. And then the pandemic happened and everyone was bored. And one of Randy Bachman's diehard fans who knew this sad story knew one particular detail about this guitar that it had a little pockmark in it, almost like a blemish. Hmm. And somehow he managed to use facial recognition software, going through YouTube and finding clips that involved a Gretsch 6120. And he found Randy Bachman's guitar. 
Unbelievable. <laughs> this is like the first time in history that that software has been used for something that's not sinister. I know. It's so nice. I mean, guitar faces seems fine with me to me at yeah, least. Yeah, let's profile the guitars. Let's figure out where the guitars are. Maybe the people less so. He found it on a clip of a Japanese pop musician named Takeshi playing Rocket Around the Christmas Tree. And this is my favorite part of the story, probably. Bachman was going to try to explain this to Takeshi so he could get his guitar back, but he didn't speak Japanese. But luckily... Mm-hmm. His son, Tal Bachman, who you might remember from the 1990s hit, She's So High. Un- I believe I had that on a Now That's What I Call Music 3 oh, CD yeah. or something. Right up there with like Ace of Bass and other yeah. great late 90s hits. Well, um, Tal Bachman's partner, Coco, was born in Japan and lived there for 16 years, served as translator. And Randy Bachman over the years has bought a million Gretsch 6120s to try to capture, recapture that sound. So he's going to fly to Japan with one of those other Gretches and trade with Takeshi, who was more than willing to give up his guitar. I think he found it in like a Japanese music store a few years ago to complete the circle. <laughs> that is an incredible story. You better chain that thing to the toilet when he gets home. Chain it to the toilet every day. Chain it to the toilet. This seems like a good time for me to bring you my best news I heard all week story, which takes us to Upper Marlboro, Maryland, where these three zebras escaped from like an exotic animal farm and have been outwitting, first of all, the exotic animal farm guy who's been looking for them and animal control. Like nobody can find these zebras because apparently they're very wily. Um, (laughs) They talk in this uh, article in the Washington Post to a zebra expert. Her name is Nancy Nunke. And she says that zebras are survivalists. They're much smarter than horses. Hmm. Here is something that I didn't realize was a thing, Elena. Uh, this woman runs something called the International Zebra Zorse Zonkey Association. I would rather call it a hebra than a zorse. <laughs> I don't know. Well, she, she knows a lot about these zebras, including the fact that they can run 35 miles an hour and uh, that they're called a dazzle. That's the collective noun for a bunch of zebras? Yes, a dazzle of, of zebras. Unfortunately, that. of the three, one of the zebras died, which is kind of a bit of a sad story, but there are still two of them. And everybody in this part of Maryland is now rooting for these zebras and hoping that they like will have a, like a baby zebra and then they can have more zebras and there can just be like a flock, <laughs> like a dazzle of wild zebras. It'll be the state mammal of Maryland. <laughs> and also, I think a good name for the Washington football team, the team that used to have that racist name, and they still don't have a name. Their name is the Washington football team right now. How about the the Washington zebras? Or the Washington zorses. <laughs> Anything would be better than what their old name was, that's for sure. Amen. So the possibility that there could be a wild dazzle of zebras in Maryland going forward is the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's uh, welcome our first guest on over to the show. Uh, Elena, do you remember Walter Mercado? Oh, yes. Mucho, mucho. Yes. He was that (laughs) astrologer and TV personality who kind of became a cultural phenomenon, particularly in the Latinx community, but also at my house and Elena's house. Mm -hmm. If you watch Donahue as a kid. Oh, I loved him. Um, He was sort of everywhere. And then all of a sudden, he just kind of withdrew from the public eye. And our guests wanted to figure out what happened to Walter Mercado. So they looked into it and they made a Netflix documentary about it. It's called Mucho, Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. It premiered at Sundance and Variety called it glittery, fabulous and fun. 
Christina Costantini and Kareem Tauch. Welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks for having us. Uh, where are you both at right now? I'm in Los Angeles, and Karim is in the lovely Miami. <laughs> mm. And Kareem, you turned the fan off for our audio recording purposes, which in Miami is like the ultimate sacrifice. So thank you for doing that. This is to show what a true Livewire fan I am. Hey! I'm willing to sit and swelter for public thank you. radio. I love a fan who turns off the fan. There you go. <laughs> and you know who else would probably do that would be Walter Mercado. Like, I feel like this guy got entertainment. Hmm. First of all, I was obsessed with Walter Mercado as a kid, but I feel like I'm a little bit older than both of you, Kareem and Christina. Um, and Elena and I both, we were talking earlier, like we remember being kids and seeing Walter Mercado on things. How did the two of you become aware of him? Because again, I think you're both a little bit younger than us. So, you know, we both grew up with Walter because I don't mm. think that, I don't think that there's, you could be Latino and not have grown up with Walter under the age of like 75, maybe. Mm. <laughs> he, was, he was just a constant presence on Latino television. And similarly, um, Christina and I are, uh, I'm a bit older than Christina. Uh, and <laughs> even then we had the same exact experience, which is like every afternoon, quarter to six, our grandmothers would shush us. Bring us in front of the TV for mm. Primer Impacto, which I call Latino hard copy. And, <laughs> totally. And then Walter Mercado would all of a sudden come on. And God forbid if you spoke during those four-minute segments, uh, mm. he mesmerized us. So uh, we really don't remember a time when he wasn't a daily presence in our lives. Mm. Mm. And you're right, Luke, he's a consummate professional. He would, every day that we were with him, even though he was, you know, 87, 88, he would mm. hate, he would hate to hear me say that. But <laughs> even though he was old, he was, he gave us everything he had. And he would wear these heavy capes, the capes are at 15, 20 pounds, some of them. And he would dance around and he would, uh, you know, in the Puerto Rican humidity. Uh, mm. So he, he was, I think, the most a professional person we'd ever met, you wow. know. I feel like they don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> totally, like an old-fashioned, like, show person. Like, that that comes through in the film, these mm -hmm. moments where he's asking questions off camera and, and sort of thinking what's the shot here, mm -hmm. what's the best way to be the most kind of performative in this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, he was the hardest, you know, I used to be an investigative journalist. I've worked with, you know, executives who are great at dodging questions and drug lords. Huh. And he is the hardest person we've ever, <gasps> I've ever worked with because he knows exactly what you're filming. Like at all times, there's mm. never a moment where he doesn't understand his angles. And so when he sees a camera come out, he automatically goes into like his shtick, which was, uh, you know, his hands doing these amazing yes. things. But it was very hard to capture him in kind of an unfiltered moment because he, right. he, didn't, he didn't really want that. And so it was uh -huh. really hard. How did you get to uh, a place where you could ask him some questions and get some answers that you, you thought would help the film? I think for one is just the trust that you build as like documentarians with your subject. Like we were with uh, Walter and his family and his team, you know, in a two and a half years uh, wow. All the time. So, you know, we we kind of became extended family and were led into uh, private spaces. But also we just tired him out. I mean, we were <laughs> relentless. You know? right. We had to keep asking the questions and sometimes he could see that we were frustrated and other times he was just aloof about it, mm. maybe on mm. purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, but we kind of explained to him, like, you know, we wanted to do something that was different. We wanted to kind of get to the man behind the cape. Um mm. 
And I think that sometimes that that registered and other times it didn't, but uh, it's, it's part of who he is. And I think our persistence and the time we spent together paid off. For the you know people who may not know who Walter Mercado uh, is and was, can you give a little bit of his uh, biographical uh, backstory? Yeah, so Walter was a Latino superstar. He was a, an astrologer and um, and a performer. His background was as a singer and an actor and a dancer. I'm sorry, not as a singer, as an actor and a dancer. He was actually a really bad singer. Um, <laughs> really? No, he released an album. So he did, he did release. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Technically, it's true. Um, just technically. Um, in the sense that we're all singers. He was also a singer. You know, he's, he's probably somewhere in the great beyond observing this whole thing, Kareem. So you got to be careful, yeah. right? I, I think you'd be okay as long as we don't focus on his age. We could kind oh, of right. talk about anything with Walter. Just don't talk about his age. <laughs> so he was this, this TV personality who came into our homes and you know gave us our astrological horoscopes every day. But really what he was was kind of like the first great motivational speaker, mm-hmm. like through through these messages for Libra and Sagittarius and whatnot, uh, he was telling us that he knew today was difficult, but tomorrow would be a better day. And he was instilling this inspiration and this hope and uh, and this ultimate message of like the importance of love. Mm. And he was hugely famous. I mean, people can't understand mm. how big he was at the peak of his career. Uh, he was in 120 million homes a day. It's like the Super Bowl every day. All right, we've got to take a quick break here on Livewire. We're talking to the filmmakers Christina Costantini and Kareem Taups about their Netflix documentary, Mucho, Mucho Amor, about Walter Mercado. Don't go anywhere. We've got Mucho, Mucho Moss coming up in a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, uh, and Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to Christina Costantini and Kareem Topsh, uh, the people behind the documentary Mucho Mucho Amor, 
about Walter Mercado, the uh, psychic from uh, Puerto Rico, who uh, really kind of captivated the world for a period of time, including me as a kid, seeing him on like Donahue, mm-hmm. I think. Sally Jesse. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> like he, he really made the rounds uh, for a while. Uh, but uh, Kareem and Christina, it sounds like growing up in uh, Latino households, it was a whole other level of Walter Mercado. Like what was the way that he kind of bridged the generational gap in a, like a Latino household? Yeah, you know, our grandmothers loved him because he was, you know, this very fancy, refined man. He has, he in the way that Liberace had mm-hmm. this, like, you know, little old lady following, Walter also had a little old lady following. And I think, you know, in my, my grandmother's mind, he was the most refined. He was like, he, he has kind of a religious look to mm-hmm. him, like, you know, popes kind of dress like him. <laughs> and then I think for kids... We were enamored with him in the way that, you know, we were also enamored with Big Bird or Mr. Rogers. He's like some right. combination. He is incredibly visually compelling. So when you look at him, you, you can't look away. And his outfit changed every day. He was incredibly aware of his medium and, and would curate this kind of this this curiosity about what he looked like and, and what he was going to wear that day and and how many rings he had on these fingers. And then, you know, he brought to this this immigrant community, largely immigrant community, a lot of hope when our families really needed it. And so mm. um, he had a power over all of our households. And uh, I think we all, all kind of share this. Our grandpas like to pretend that they didn't believe, but they always would kind of like gravitate towards the television <laughs> when he was on and kind of <laughs> pretend not to be listening. But it was like, just in case, yeah. just in case he's right. Like, uh, I better find out what's going to happen for Libras this week. So oh. there's no comparison to to, to mm. him. Uh, you know, we say Oprah, Liberace, Mr. Rogers, and Big Bird. That's mm-hmm. if you combine them all into one specimen. <laughs> but and, and also make it kind of gender bendy, right? Yeah, he was really the first person who ever came on television and, and not just Latino television, really, and, and television in general, who was challenging the notions of like masculinity and femininity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think for us growing up, we weren't sure, is that a man? Is that mm-hmm. a woman? You know, is he from Earth? He was just so <laughs> otherworldly, right? Not just from the gender expression, just you know, male or female, he looked, he looked like no one else you had ever seen. Uh, and so he really kind of was the first person who, you know, in a mainstream way challenged the gender binary. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I was really fascinated with him as a kid, because I just, I wasn't quite sure, is this a, a man? Is this a woman? Like the filter that he, I assume, would request for a lot of the shoots, you know, it was very sort of, um, Elizabeth Taylor, white, white diamonds. diamonds. <laughs> like, yes. It was extremely like a lot of Vaseline on yeah. the lens. Yes. Oh my gosh. One of the most fun things for Kareem and I making this was going through all of the old archival and looking at all of the different looks. He was always trying to achieve new mm-hmm. and different worlds and, and, and they produced a lot of their own stuff. So uh, there was one under the sea episode that was shot from entirely behind a fish tank and the fish would, <laughs> would swim in and swim. They were very creative. We're talking to Kareem Topsch and Christina Costantini about their film, Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado, about the uh, Puerto Rican psychic Walter Mercado. Uh, we were talking earlier about how 
when I was watching this uh, this film, I was reminded of the fact that mostly what he did was really sort of motivational speaking. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I remain to this day a person who doesn't really believe in astrology, but, like, the stuff he's saying, like, I'm a Taurus, and whether <laughs> I believe that my, you know, star sign is indicating it is sort of separate from the idea that, like, I felt really pumped up hearing him talk <laughs> to Tauruses about, like, the fact that we can do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if you listen to as many readings as Kareem and I have during the (laughs) process, you start to pick up on a lot of similarities, which is that basically every sign he tells you, even if yesterday was hard, tomorrow's going to have be a better day. You're going to have a good week. It's, you know, practice love and work hard and be mm-hmm. nice. And, you know, he, 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 he basically said the same thing over and over again. Kareem but, and I, by the way, are not huge believers in astrology, but it had the same effect on us, mm-hmm. you know, even in person when we worked with him, he gave us our horoscope readings and he told us, you know, that we were creative, but difficult. Uh, right, Kareem? Does that check out? We hated to agree with him, but it turns out he was 100% correct. But he also said, it's going to be a great year for you. Great things are coming. And you want to believe that. You need hope. Life is hard. What's the archival situation with his work? Is is there like a Harry Ransom Center for his TV shows? Uh, yeah, under his bed in Puerto Rico for a very long time. <laughs> um, it was, you know, that was a, a one of the challenges. First of all, was that he was on television for 50 years. He had hopped around uh, different channels. He had produced, produced a show in, in Puerto Rico for years, and he was producing in the state. Um, so Walter had a, kind of a great archive of photographs and newspaper clippings. Video was harder to come by. So we did a lot of hunting all over his house and uh, talking to anyone who might have something. And that's how we uncovered what, what we do have. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, was, it was a lot of work and it was a lot of hard work. And some of our sources were like VHS tapes that we found hidden behind a book, of, you know, <laughs> on whatever. Uh, in oh a closet God. a year and a half after he told us he didn't have anything, we would yeah. find these things. Oh, wow. He would say, I don't no, I don't have any of the shows from the 90s. And oh. then, you know, we'd be in his room and it would say like, 90s shows. <laughs> Walter, what is this? Is this your 90s show? She's like, oh, it must be. It was a very, yeah. But it was, it was good we spent so much time with him because at first he he told us there was nothing. There was no archive left. Also part of the film, by the way, we're talking to Kareem Topsch and Christina Costantini about uh, their film Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. Part of the film is it gets into sort of he lost his name for a while, right? Professionally because of of, of an unfortunate business deal. Yeah. So there, I mean, you know, when we sought out to make the film, we wanted to kind of tell the story of his unlikely rise to superstardom. But we also wanted to explain what happened because after mm-hmm. decades on television and a huge fan base, he basically disappeared overnight. And so what we what we learn and what viewers see is that it was basically a uh, business deal gone sour with his mm-hmm. former manager. And from one day to the next, he lost the ability to use his name, Walter Mercado, his, which was his birth name, was also a trademark. And uh, in essence, it forced him off of television and into a legal battle of many, many years and many millions of dollars mm-hmm. that uh, ultimately I think, you know, not just didn't just cost him his fame, it really did cost him his health. Mm. Did you sense that spending time with him that he was uh, had that had really taken a toll on him? 
Yeah, you know, I think I think it was hard for him. To, he's he is a creature of love. Like that is the that is the I think feeling that comes most naturally to him, and that he would prefer to practice every day. And he doesn't he doesn't like thinking about the bad times. He doesn't like you know fighting. He doesn't like um, you know. So so these years and years of um, legal battles were really hard on him. Mm. In in you know in a professional sense, but I think more in a personal sense, Bill was very dear to him. He was like a, a son of sorts. This was his manager who, who sort of, uh, you know, ultimately took his name and his kind of professional um, reputation, I guess. Exactly. And I think for Walter, it was a betrayal of sorts. And, uh, and uh, it was very difficult on him. You know, a lot of people are confused about why Walter won't say any negative things about Bill. You know, he, he really doesn't like going into any of those details. And I think it was very much like a divorce of sorts where there was like a lot of love between these two, you know, people, and then things fell apart. And there's still a, a great amount of love and respect. And, you know, Bill is in the film telling the story of how wonderful Walter is. So it's a very complicated and sad event that happened in Walter's life. Mm. Uh, it's interesting, Christina, because you you talk about Walter like he's uh, still here mm-hmm. um, and he passed away. Do you feel like, I mean, is that part of the Walter Mercado kind of mystique? Like he's still sort of in the ether somewhere? Yeah, you know, I love when he says, I used to be a star, but now I'm a constellation. <laughs> uh, I oh, that's he, so powerful in the film. Yeah. And, you know, he, he very much believed that he was like a beam of light without endings and beginnings. And he crossed through mm. the astral plane of Earth for just a small period of time. So mm. it, in his view, he never he was never born and he never died. And mm. so, you know, in honor of Walter, I think I like to believe his legend of himself. Uh, Kareem, you were a pallbearer at his funeral. What was what was that like? The the funeral in in general must have been quite the event. Yeah, you know, it was it was really surreal in so many ways. We had finished our uh, cut of the film and submitted it to Sundance mm. on November first, and on November second, Walter died. Mm. Um, and then we all went to Puerto Rico. Uh, to be with the family and um, and to be Alex, our Alex Fumero, our producer, and I were pallbearers, and um, it, it was just you know the the rush of the emotions. In one sense, I think that we felt Walter knew his job was done. He knew that this was kind of be his kind of great last big hurrah. Uh, and once the film was finished, he knew he could kind of uh, go on having completed his work. And being there um, and seeing just how much he meant to everyone. Uh, And, you know, even more so than in the island, just seeing how the world reacted. You know, there was obituaries and op-eds in the New York Times and in the LA Times and Mm -hmm. actually newspapers and and news media all over the world covered it. And it just reminded us how much Walter meant for so many millions of people. Yeah. But at least through mucho, mucho more folks can get a little bit of that Walter magic and that Walter love coming through the TV screen and, uh, and reminding us that uh, we could all be a little magical as long as we live with love. <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, the film is Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. It's on Netflix if you want to check it out. Uh, Christina Costantini and Kareem Tabsh, thank you so much for being on Livewire. Thank you. Thanks for having thank us. You. We're thrilled. That was Christina Costantini and Kareem Taubsch right here on Livewire. Their documentary, Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado, is available on Netflix right now. Mm 
Hey, special thanks this episode to Phyllis Shelton of Portland. Phyllis is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports the show with a donation each month, which we are very, very appreciative of because it is how we are able to keep doing Livewire. So a big thanks this week to Phyllis. This is Livewire from PRX. Of course, each week on the show, we ask the Livewire listeners a question. And with Halloween looming, we ask the listeners, what's your most memorable Halloween costume? Not to mention that it was like Walter Mercado was sort of in costume Always. at all times. Yes. So this is an appropriate question this week. Elena, what are the uh, listeners saying? Oh, this one from Tish needs a little more information. Tish says, in 2017, I dressed up as the Eclipse. Hmm. How? How would you dress up as that? 2017, of course, was when the big eclipse happened, especially yeah. in places like here in Oregon, um, yeah. and where you were in the path of totality. Did you actually go out and look at the totality of it? I was in, uh, an, I was in Vermont, so I couldn't see it. See, I saw like 87% where I happened to be at the time, and I thought, well, that's pretty good. But everyone I know who was in actual totality of that eclipse says it was like an emotional borderline spiritual experience. But I don't know how you would dress up as an eclipse. Like, would you just dress in all black? That's sort of what I would be guessing you'd be looking like. Easy costume. Yeah, it is. I mean, you can do it again, I think, in like four years in South America, which is when that's going to happen again. What's another memorable Halloween costume from our listeners? Here's a pretty dark one from Ilana. Ilana says, my most memorable Halloween costume is a mermaid who died from pollution. (laughs) I mean, we're not treating this planet right, so I guess it's good to be reminded of it, even when you're trying to have a Halloween party. Yeah, and some of the best like art pieces of horror, like Jordan Peele's Mm -hmm. work, have political uh, messages, so there you go. Good job, Alana. Uh, what's another memorable Halloween costume that someone sent in? Here's one from Zach. Zach dressed up as the Queen of Hearts and says, we took my friend's wedding dress from her first marriage and spray painted <laughs> hearts all over it. I wove myself a heart-shaped crown out of gold wire, and then I served at a restaurant for my shift. <laughs> I'm sure that was cathartic for this person's friend to uh, like repurpose, to upcycle the wedding dress from the uh, like the failed wedding. Yeah. You know what they say about playing with the Queen of Hearts? What? Not smart. Really, just something you don't want to do. Especially if you're a joker. The joker the is only the only fool. fool. That's right. All right, what's another costume that someone wanted to tell us about? Oh, Dylan at one point was, quote, an iCloud account. <laughs> Dylan says, I made a giant fluffy cloud by covering a cowboy hat in three bags of stuffing, painted it gray like a storm cloud, and put a string of tiny LED lights through it. And then I just wore a t-shirt with a letter I on it. I won the top prize at my office costume party. (laughs) That is really, really really good. But if you really want to be an iCloud, you have to consistently charge me an extra $5 every month because I'm too lazy to like organize my photos. You have to keep telling me I'm out of space and I can either get in there and make some decisions or I can just increase my storage and pay more money. So you walk around the party and getting money off of people. This is the best costume I've ever heard of. 
Like No, absolutely. That's genius. Good thing we're like a week early for Halloween so people can go out yeah. and make this happen. All across America this year, it's just going to be people being an iCloud based on that listener's <laughs> suggestion. Speaking of costumes, how about we uh, venture into the world of theater, shall we? Our next guest wrote the musical Hades Town, which won the Tony for Best Musical last year. Her new book, Working on a Song, is a really fascinating look into the creative process behind this musical, which is an adaptation of a Greek myth. It's set in the underworld. She was also named a two times list of the 100 most influential people in the world, by which we mean this world, not uh, the underworld. <laughs> they don't have that list yet. Working on it. Anyway, Anais Mitchell, welcome to Livewire. Luke, thank you so much for having me. I have to say that I was sort of uh, a late uh, arriver to Hadestown. I mean, I'd heard uh, about it and I'd heard about all the Tonys, but I started listening to the cast recording in preparation for this and I was totally blown away. It is incredible. Congratulations. Oh man, thank you. Thank you so much. There's like various recordings, you know, you, you, when people say they've listened to the mm. recording, there's there's the Broadway one, there's also an off-Broadway recording of some of the music, and there's a studio record from 2010, so right. you never know what people have heard. Um, let's start kind of at the beginning, though, of the idea of Town. Where did you first get interested in this story of, of Orpheus and Eurydice? Yeah, you know, I think like a lot of... Um, like a lot of creative work, like the very origins of it were um, pretty mysterious. Like I was driving in my car, I was in my 20s, and I was just embarking on like a singer-songwriter career, and I I would drive these crazy distances just like for a tip gig. And um, I was in the car, and these lines just dropped into my head, uh, and they had a melody, and they went, um, wait for me, I'm coming. It had this that melody. Mm-hmm. Um, in my garters and pearls. With what melody did you barter me from the wicked underworld? Those were the first lines that came. And, and they didn't end up in the show, but they sort of pointed the way, like the wicked underworld. It, it, they pointed the way to the Orpheus and Eurydice story. And it was just one that had always like captivated me as a kid. I remember seeing it in like a children's illustrated book of mythology. So I kind of was like, huh, and started to follow the thread. And, and I got excited about the story. Um, First of all, got excited as a songwriter to to try to tell a longer form story with songs. Mm-hmm. And also just, I think, the age that I was and it was sort of like um, the Orpheus character is this this young, idealistic, creative guy. He believes if he could write a song beautiful enough, he could like change the rules of the world. I find it to be such an interesting topic for first an album that you wrote. Like when you sort of had the idea, did you think Greek mythology, this is going to be a big hit? I'm sure I wasn't like uh, that self-aware or, you know, aware of what what it was and how it would be received. It was just a sort of mysterious impulse. And early on, you know, I was living in Vermont, which is actually where I am now again. Um, Mm. And I... I had these friends, like I roped in a couple of collaborators very early on. One was the the early director, designer of the show um, called Ben Matchstick. He was like a bread and puppet guy. And mm-hmm. then um, one of the two arranger orchestrators, Michael Chorney, has been with the show since the very beginning. And um, these were guys that were living in Vermont and they were like, sure, you know, we'll work on this thing. And, um, we just like got all of our friends to sing the different roles of the characters. And we, were you playing Eurydice in the original versions? Indeed (laughs) I did. And like, I remember booking the date, like I booked some dates at 
a labor at the old labor hall in Barrie, Vermont, and the opera house of Virgins, Vermont, which is like 10 minutes from where I grew up, um, before I even had finished, you know, I had maybe like three songs and I booked these dates saying like, I'm going to do this folk opera. <laughs> um, so it was really like a leap and the net appears type of thing. And, and it was very DIY and it was a lot of like goodwill from like the community and our friends to make it happen. Obviously there were many more chapters after that, but that's how it began. This is Livewire from PRX. We are talking to Anais Mitchell, who wrote the musical Town, and also has a book out now called Working on a Song, the Lyrics of Town. In this book, you write a lot about the collaborative process and all of the revisions and everything. And it's like, this was your baby. You thought this up when you were driving in, you know, <laughs> the rural Northeast or whatever. And then all these people now kind of have an opinion and a say. Was that hard for you at all to, to sort of share this thing with all these people that collaborated for, for Hadestown, the, the big mm. musical on Broadway? That's a good question. I mean, I think collaboration is magical and also like the most difficult thing, right? Uh, there, you know, and there was all kinds of learning curves from the beginning with that. But, but you know, from the beginning, there were a lot of people involved. You can't really put a musical on a stage without a lot of minds being part of that. And so, yeah, I think most of the journey that appears in the book, the Working on a Songbook, Mm -hmm. takes place in New York. Um, So after these early Vermont shows, I I made this recording, um, the studio record that came out in 2010 of of the piece as just like an audio document. And then... A few years later, I was still like wanting to develop it further and find the right partners for that. And I, I met um, the director, Rachel Chavkin, because um, I saw a version of Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812, this incredible mm-hmm. Dave Malloy musical that she directed. And I saw it off Broadway at the Ars Nova Theater with like 50 people. And I fell totally in love with it and was like, this is, this should go to Broadway. <laughs> and, it, and it ended up going to Broadway. And uh, Rachel has this like really uncanny ability to shepherd a piece sort of as far as it can go commercially without sacrificing what was sort of unique and edgy about it as a mm-hmm. downtown thing. Um, I saw that in Great Comet and, and, I, and I wanted that for Hadestown. So she's very present in this book, as well as um, a dramaturg that we worked with named Ken Chernelia and the producers that we were working with, one of whom is named Mara Isaacs. And those guys were like, I call them team dramaturgy. And the mm-hmm. book is dedicated to them. And they they appear in a lot of the pages of the book because um, I was coming to this project as essentially, you know, from the music world as a songwriter. And what I knew how to do was to write, you know, a, a three minute song, a three and a half minute song. And um That's sort of what I love about this so much, though. Like, it doesn't sound like a lot of other musicals that I've that I've seen and heard. It has this other quality to it. And I wondered if that was because you're not somebody who started out writing Broadway musicals. You were writing albums. You know, you're a singer songwriter. It's very interesting how the paths of like the music world and music theater have intertwined and kind of diverged over the years. Because there was a time at the beginning of music theater on Broadway, I'm, I, I'm talking about something that I'm not an expert on, but where like... The- well, you only have like 20 Tonys. I feel like you have, <laughs> you know, some expertise in this area at this okay. point. Well, I read a thing one time about how like initially the stage was where you would debut like a new song and it was all about the standards, you know? And a lot of the sort of early musicals were kind of iffy, dramaturgically speaking, because they essentially were just like a vehicle for these songs. 
And then at a certain point, those worlds diverged and it was like every song that was getting written for the theater had to be doing so much work on behalf of the drama, on behalf mm-hmm. of the storytelling, right. that it could not it could not stand alone. It couldn't be repurposed, you know, mm-hmm. for a wedding or a funeral or, you know, a protest or something like that. And I think the music theater has a sort of, you know, there's a push and pull between you want to write a song that's going to do the work you need it to do for the drama, but you also just want to write a great song that someone's going to pass on to someone else, you know? And certainly I, I encountered that with making Town and how to um, take these songs that were structurally built to be song songs and right. then having to kind of explode them in different ways and add like intros and outros and interludes and stakes and um, whatever was necessary so that there would be like a, a result at the end of the song, like a revelation or a result so that we would feel we'd arrived someplace different than we began. And that is what drama really requires of us. So these are things you would learn if you went to like grad school <laughs> for music right. theater. But for me, I was getting a crash course in it. And, and that's what the book is about. Uh, we're talking to Anais Mitchell, who, whose new book is Working on a Song, The Lyrics of Town." She wrote the musical. Um, one of the uh, memorable songs from Town is uh, Why We Build the Wall, which you wrote back in like 2006. And it's for people that haven't seen Town, it's basically Hades builds this wall to keep his enemies and undesirables like out of Town. Um, that feels like an extremely relevant thing. <laughs> Did that add a kind of a layer to the song and to when it was performed, you know, uh, on stage? Because, I mean, you couldn't have called it more (laughs) accurately. It was actually like it was one of the only songs that I wrote really fast. Like, I'm a very slow writer. Lots of second guessing of of ideas and lines and then like, you know, going down wrong roads. And the book is all about that. But this song really sort of emerged fully formed and almost before I knew what it was about. And um, I want to say 2016 is when we did this show off Broadway for the first time. And so Patrick Page was suddenly singing that to an audience every night as Hades, um, Why We Build the Wall. And um, and that was during the campaign um, and then subsequent election of the of the president. And um, it certainly landed in, in a really different way and, and, and was very chilling. And I remember after that sort of wondering, should I be kind of retrofitting the show to be more about this political moment? Because it was still all, you know, get evolving and in flux, a lot of things changing. Should we be tailoring that character more to, you know, the present moment and realize like, no, that's not, that's not what this is about. Like it's a myth. He's an archetype. Mm. A wall is an archetype. And, you know, he's not the first one to use that imagery. It's a it's an image that people use because it's powerful and it and it works well on people who f- are feeling vulnerable in some way. And so, yeah, we, we, we decided to let let Hades be Hades. And, um, you know, yeah. All right, we've got to take a quick break here on Livewire. We are talking to singer-songwriter Anais Mitchell about her Tony Award-winning musical, Town. When we come back, we're going to talk to Anais a little bit more, and we're also going to hear a song. So you definitely don't want to miss that. Stay with us. This is Livewire. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, 
for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. We are talking to Anais Mitchell. She's the creative force behind the Tony award-winning musical Hades Town, and also the author of the book Working on a Song, the lyrics of Hades Town that gives a, a, a sort of behind the scenes, like literally because it's theater, a behind the scenes look at the creation of Hades Town. Um, Broadway musicals are a are very expensive uh, to put on, and many of them don't break even. Uh, I mean, it's a real kind of a long shot thing. Were you kind of shocked at just what a hit Hades Town was? Like, what were you expecting going in, or what were your hopes? Yeah, I mean, I certainly I was surprised that a show that came from such an unconventional kind of background and path could be a commercial success. You know, this show, um, it came from the wild woods of Vermont and then it was developed by a lot of kind of downtown style artists who maybe disdain like the commercial <laughs> formulas for success. And I, I'm grateful that I think everyone that was working on it was trying their utmost to make it into the, the fullest version of itself not mm-hmm. try to fit a round peg in a square hole or, you know, make it fit some sort of cookie cutter formula about like what a, what a Broadway musical should be. Um, but there were a lot of like challenges in terms of the rewriting. It was like, let's um, essentially take what had come from a very abstract world and mm-hmm. make it more and more concrete, but in the right ways, you know, to try to make it a more generous act of storytelling for people and to fill in the right blanks without like spoon feeding <laughs> the audience. Yeah. So I'm so grateful that people had faith. I mean, the producers, the investors, like that this could survive in the world of Broadway and, and props to Broadway for being able to absorb, you know, a piece that had come from this path. Yeah, I think this book is is such an interesting look for those of us who don't know a lot about how musical theater gets uh, made. A, a look into just the process and 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 how much you're thinking about story and how many changes are made to raise the emotional stakes or make something pay off or just have it all work. You know, you go, you sit in a theater, you watch, you're like, well, that was a good story with some good songs. But I mean, it is. Uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears going into the making of something like Hades Town. Uh, what can you tell us about the song you're going to play for us here, Wedding Song? Yeah. Um, so, Wedding Song is a is a little duet between the lovers, um, Orpheus and Eurydice, and it happens in the first act, very early on. Um, this song existed not in the early Vermont versions, but uh, I wrote it for the studio record in 2010. And that's the version I'm going to do, is the studio record version, if I can remember how it goes. And it was a song that always kind of worked at a song level, but required a lot of massaging in order to make it work dramatically. All right. This is Anais Mitchell here on Livewire. Lover, tell me if you can Who's gonna buy the wedding bands Times being what they are Hard getting harder all the time Lover, when I sing my song All the rivers sing along And they're gonna break their banks for me Lay their gold around my feet All are flashing in a pan All to fashion for your hand A river 
gonna give us the wedding bands. Love it, tell me if you're able. Who's gonna lay the wedding table? Times being what they are. Dark and getting darker all the time. Love it when I sing my song. All the trees gonna sing along. Bend their branches down to me and lay their fruit around my feet. The almond and the apple and the sugar from the maple. And the tree's gonna lay the wedding table. Gonna make the wedding bed Times being what they are Hard and getting harder all the time Love it when I sing my song All the birds gonna sing along And they'll come flying round to me Lay their feathers at my feet We'll lie down and hide down In the pillow neath our heads And the birds gonna make the wedding bed And the trees are gonna lay Anais Mitchell playing wedding song from Hadestown. Look, you remembered the lyrics. I remembered him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for, for playing for us. What a pleasure. That was Anais Mitchell right here on Livewire. Her book, Working on a Song, The Lyrics of Hadestown, is available now. And you can catch Hadestown on Broadway. Broadway's back, baby. My mom saw Hadestown. It's on tour as well. And just oh, cool. in Greenville, South Carolina. And she just lost her mind. She loved it so much. So It is really good. I actually wasn't that familiar with it before we had the interview with Anais. And now I can't get the songs out of my head. Like I've turned into a real fan of the thing. All right. Before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. It's a real doozy, Elena. <laughs> We're going to be talking about musical legacies with none other than Nikki Six from Motley Crue. So talk about his journey from being an Idaho farm boy to selling over a hundred million albums as part of Motley Crue. He wrote the song Home Sweet Home, one of the great ballads of the 1980s, in my opinion. Uh, then we're going to talk to legendary filmmaker Todd Haynes. He's got a new documentary out about the Velvet Underground. Plus, we're going to hear music from Melanie Charles from her album, Y'all Don't Really Care About Black Women. It's a love letter to the unheralded labor of black women in music. Plus, we're going to be looking to hear from you, our listeners, with our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the Livewire fan base for next week? Well, with all that music in the show next week, mm -hmm. you know that we've got to have a music-themed audience question. And so it is, what's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> How much singing do you think we are going to slip into yeah. <laughs> during next week's show? However much the editors will leave in. Yes, I, I, I would. I think we should just turn all of our banter in between uh, as it, into just yes. a karaoke. Opportunity. Just do it in song. Yeah, like basically turn it into an operetta yes. next week. Because I feel like any karaoke song someone mentions, you or I are going to start singing it, just kind of like involuntarily. Yeah. So. yeah. 
It's going to be a heck of a show next week. We hope you can join us. If you've got an answer to that listener question, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. That's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Christina Costantini, Kareem Taupch, and Anais Mitchell. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Phyllis Shelton of Portland. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.